everyone, and welcome to Unscripted Equity Curiosity, a Hedgeye podcast. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the sector head for technology here at Hedgeye. And with me today is Andrew Friedman, as always, our sector head for communications here at Hedgeye. Today, we have a special guest. Uh, his name is Rob Simone. Many of you know him. He is uh, Hedgeye's REITs analyst. He is an outspoken advocate of justice and truth. He does not wear tights yet, or but he might have a cape. And we're going to interview Rob today. And Rob, thank you so much. We're very excited to have you here. This is going to be season three, episode 10 of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. So uh, something that we're very proud of in terms of uh, the amount of um, effort we've put into this and the library of of, uh, podcasts that we've put out there. We're very excited about the content, very rich content. And we're really excited to add your voice to that content. So um, with that, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to, I want to open it up to you for a sec and, um, or not for a sec, for the next little while, um, and maybe get started with, uh, with kind of like a general question, which is, um, and I want to start on MPW. I don't want to stay on MPW, but I want to start on MPW um, because, and I'll explain for listeners. Just, just get, just getting right to it. I love it. Just yeah. Right well, it. <laughs> well, I was thinking either that I'm going to ask you like, why are you a Yankees fan? But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, for the listeners, like, you know, we're all in this, in this uh, world where we're trying to invest our dollars and we're trying to, and generally speaking, I think, you know, market, we don't, we have, you know, macro views of markets. We have long-term, you know, profit growth views of markets and things like that. And, um, you know, I think we've all been educated around a lot of different important principles that have worked or at least have worked in the past and who knows if they'll work in the future. But one of the things that we all want to do is make sure that we're not, that we're avoiding fraud. And because that's where your stock doesn't go down 15 or 20% against the market going up 15, 20%. That's where your capital goes to zero. So that's one of the things that we are all trying to keep our eyes and attention for. It's actually like, again, sorry to go on this intro, but like, it's actually not so easy to do because the American culture, um, and I'm, I'm specifically calling it America, not, 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 you know, to differentiate against uh, other uh, cultures, just because in the last five, six years, most of the stocks that I've analyzed are American companies. Um, but the American culture specifically has this sort of like marketing element to it. Uh, like it's like always be marketing. It's not always be closing. It's always be marketing, right? So someone asks you, how are you? Things are amazing. Uh, it's, it's, it's companies are like that. Uh, they have this like things are, you know, you might be listening to an earnings call where the company is, is you know, the stock is down 25% after hours and the company's telling you they just had a record quarter, right? So there's this marketing thing that we always have to sort of read between the lines around. And so I want to go right to MPW and just say like from the start, what was it? What was the first thing, the smoke signal where you were like, something's not right there. What was that thing that tripped you that, of course, then, you know, there was a sort of a long tail of stuff that came out of pursuing that research, but what was that first thing? And, and this is the goal is, is, you know, me as an analyst and us as listeners, we're just trying to understand, like, you know, from a process perspective, what are the things we need to, where's the, we, we need to add to our antennas always in this, in this area. So what are the antenna elements that we should be raising uh, right now in the back of our heads in light of everything you've found? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's a great question. And by the way, re- really quick, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for humoring me. I know I talk about this a lot. And 
it, it's it's interesting. So, like before before I ans- answer that, there like something kind of popped in my head as you were speaking. That as an analyst, as someone that you know, and you I know you guys, but you 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 guys may disagree or agree with this, but one of the things that we have to be cognizant of as analysts trying to um, you know help our subs make money, right? Like ultimately, that's kind of the goal. Um, you know, there there are times in the cycle where you know, frauds work, unfortunately. And, and so if, if you have something that, or frauds or like, you know, what Chanos would call legal frauds, they, they work and um, you have to be cognizant of that. So like you, you as an analyst may, you know, think that you found something, um, you know, really kind of, um, I don't know, maybe uh, interesting or, or confusing or something that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and the stock will like continue to rip in your face despite everything you found or you think you found. And so like one of the things that I kind of learned as I got to hedge eye is that there's like a, there's time and space during which, you know, but finding something like this will, will, you know, work to the downside as a short. Um, so let me just, you know, cause you don't want to, you don't want to get squeezed. You get the sque- life squeezed out of you and get caught on the wrong side and like lose your clients a lot of money. But with that said, and, wait, and wait, that might wait, just be wait, wait. Uh, I'll jump in for a sec on that. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Because, because, because I, I, I know, I see where you are, um, and I just want to share, like, a uh, bigger sort of picture on that. Um, I agree. However, you are commenting on it from the picture of the trees. And maybe the forest is that, and, and I've been there and I've, and I, I probably made a lot of mistakes around, you know, managing the tree in the moment. Um, but at the forest level, like looking back uh, at kind of at, at things, even if those stocks go up, they, rem- they, they have to remain on the other side of the position monitor or the, the balance sheet or however you want to title it in terms of like your, 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 your asset exposure. And so, sure. and so even though it's going up and you'll have lots of people chirping you like, dude, you suck, you know, you, this thing's going up, it's up a hundred percent and you, you're shorting it, you idiot. Like, and believe me, we've done this. Um, it's exactly the kind of thing to stay with. Because you're calling, especially in our seats, like maybe if you're on the buy side, you've got to be be careful because that's career risk. But you've got to keep it there uh, because you have, there's too much, um, because you you it's like a signal to the rest of the market that this isn't one of the good companies. Um, go invest elsewhere. So it's a very, very powerful, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm having a little sore throat today, but it's a very powerful signal. And I would say, um, and we had, I'm thinking specifically, Yosef and I had this one, this with a company called Medallia, uh, ticker was MDLA, was not a fraud, um, but it was a, it was it a liar exactly? Like it was like basically, yeah, it wasn't like everybody else. Okay. And they were doing, you know, they were saying one thing and doing another and so on and so forth and all these kinds of interesting things. We called that out for a long time and, you know, it, 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 it 
squeezed down and then it's squeezed back up and things like that. And of course we, we you know, got scared and, and covered at some point and kept it on the short bench, but not on the active shorts. And, but it, it should have, I, in looking back, I should have just kept it on the actives the whole way, because when you find even just forget about short of the frauds, but like when you find the fakers, um, yes, it, it's like Keith says, you know, risk happens very slowly and then all at once. Right. So if you find the fakers, you stay with it because it's hard to anticipate exactly where the moment is that they are going to hit that wall. But you stay, you stay with the short because it's such a powerful signal. Okay. I just wanted to comment on that. Sorry. Cause that's a, a general, by the way, a process point that I think if you, if you, you know, take a huge step back, drink a lot of beer, think about it. I think you'll probably agree with me in terms of like not over managing against something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I agree with you, by the way, and maybe to answer the question, kind of like take it back to the beginning. Um, so I had, I had heard about MPW for, for years um, and, and never covered it actively. I, I told the story a couple of times, but you, you guys know how this is. Like you'll, you know, you, you'll go to a conference, you'll be at the bar with a bunch of bysiders kind of like talking about a, a bunch of meetings you just had and, inevitably that like one company will come up and it'll be like, Oh man, you know, can you believe what these guys just did? Or can you believe the story they're telling? Um, you know, it's ridiculous. It's fraud. They're, they're lying to you. All, all of the above. Right. And over the years, you know, I, I covered lodging, I covered self storage, you know, the REIT, the REIT world is broken up into subsectors, um, you know, towers, data centers, the guys, you know, the areas that touch you guys most, you know, directly perhaps, but, um, I, what I would say is that like MPW <clears throat> was always, and this is medical properties trust was always kind of like on that list of, of conversation. Right. And, and I guess, you know, over the years I had heard about it, I never really dug in. And, and, and it was actually around the time that we, um, you know, we, we made invitation homes, uh, a short recommendation early last year, which was very controversial for a variety of reasons. Um, that I was, I was having client calls and a couple different clients, like independently of one another, just, just asked me in passing, like, Hey, do you think MPW is going to have to cut its dividend? And the, at the time I didn't have a view on it. Cause I had, I hadn't spent any time on it. Um, and you know, the first two times I kind of like didn't really pay, pay it much mind, but the third and the fourth time. I, I remember saying to myself, like, oh, my God, you know, I, I should I should understand this because like clear. Well, first of all, there's a question that people are asking each other um, and themselves that they don't know the answer to. And like, it seems like it's a topical question. So, like, I better have a view on this. And so what, what I did was or I better try to develop a view. And so one um, one Friday, I, <clears throat> I, I, you know, printed out uh, the annual report from the prior year couple of the earnings calls and, and most importantly, the, um, the proxy statement. So the DEF 14A, the, the proxy for the prior year, and, and you guys have probably heard me talk about this, but that's actually one of the most important parts in my process. I, I actually start by reading the proxy when I look at a REIT and that's kind of like a, a weird place to start, right? Like usually, I don't know what you guys do, but like typically you'll start with like the, the 10K or an earnings call or an earnings report. To me, the, the proxy is such a powerful document, um, especially in the REIT space, because in the end, you know, m- many of these 
businesses or these companies don't have an operating business or shouldn't. They're just owners of the property. And depending on the subsector, um, they'll hire a third party to actually run the business that occupies that asset. And um, healthcare and, and lodging, so Todd space, you know, for a variety of reasons, like the, the owners are not, uh, the, the REITs are not allowed to self-operate those assets. And so what really what it boils down to is you have like a kind of like a quasi quasi publicly traded private equity fund or just a pure capital allocator. So what, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is like you want to understand um, you want to understand the incentives and, and how the, the company is incentivizing the management team and how they're they're laying out their goals to, to understand where the puck is going as opposed to where it is um, to draw like a sports analogy. And, and one of the first things that caught my eye, and I had seen this before um, with a company called Commonwealth Reed years ago, very controversial story, um, perverse incentives, like bad shareholder, you know, bad corporate governance. Um, one of the things that they did was compensate themselves uh, based on acquisition volume. And, and MPW does the same thing. So like if you go to their, their proxy statement and open it up, and just go to the uh, the compensation discussion. E- even this year, after everything that happened last year, they're still targeting acquisition dollar acquisition volume as a performance metric. Now, as a capital allocator, like think about think about what that means. You're incentivizing effectively the management team to go out and a buy anything, and b potentially to pay the highest price because those are the two easiest ways to meet a dollar acquisition volume target. So like become, become an asset aggregator as opposed to being like a prudent, um, you know, prudent steward of capital, so to speak. And, and when I, when I read that, I, first of all, it, it's, it's exceedingly rare to see that like over time, I, the REITs have kind of like gotten the message and, and dialed that back. And, and when I saw it, I remember thinking, and this was like a Friday night after my kids went to sleep, I, I locked myself in my office and I was just like, you know, reading through a bunch of stuff. And before I knew it, it was three in the morning. I just kind of like got down this rabbit hole. But I knew at that point kind of like how the story was going to evolve and where it was going to end up. But the second one, um, that was the first flag. But the second flag was, uh, well, I mean, there's so many with this company, it, it's, it's almost like hard to list them all out. But another big one um, was, was kind of, you know, figuring out or discovering that MPW as a REIT, which is supposed to be an investor in real property, right? Like your, your, your goal, your charge, the reason why REITs exist is to deploy money into real estate and allow, uh, you know, public shareholders to participate in the economics of that real estate via distributions over time, right? As you know, to, to broaden the access to, to real estate beyond just like owning a building directly. And one of the company, one of the things this company did in early 2021, it originated a loan, a $335 million loan to effectively to the CEO of its largest tenant, Steward Health, who pledged his equity as collateral against that loan. And this individual used the proceeds effectively to buy out 
Cerberus as the prior equity owner of Steward. So I, I know I said a lot there. Basically, what, what MPW did, it allowed a counterparty, a significant counterparty, an individual, to buy out the company that he ran that pays rent back to MPW. So they financed the change of control. And regardless of what, like, you, you could stop, like, right there. I could have stopped right there and been like, oh, my God, this is, this is like, unfreaking believable. Like, I mean, I've, I've never seen that before, especially not in this size. But that should never happen. Ever. There's no reason, there's no world where that loan should be made. It's completely inappropriate. I'm not saying it's illegal, but from, like, a, a purpose and a capital allocation standpoint, it shouldn't, it shouldn't exist and it makes no sense. So like there's something, my, my, my antenna was up, I guess, to use your words, that something else like, you know, potentially bad or perverse or maybe even nefarious was going on here. And I just kind of decided to really dig in because I thought that like I'd found something unique. Hi, Robert McGordy here, director of subscriber development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. I love it. Um, I, I made notes along the way and, and you know, one of those I know you said before, but, you know, that you start in the proxy um, that's, you know, fascinating of its own, um, accord and probably something we'll touch on again, but the, the acquisition volume that you mentioned, uh, that, uh, how could that be legal, right? Like you're, if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking like, why doesn't the SEC flag these things? Like, why is that legal? Why are, why, why is that not an accounting, uh, thing that's, you know, kind of like obvious, you know, obvious, um, uh, obvious, you know, imp- there's some some kind of like fundamental impairment to that because uh, it's like a long time ago I found a company that was essentially you know kind of like buying rev. They you know management was judged on revenue and they were buying revenue. They were they had a they had a joint venture. Uh, their capex uh, was was recognized as revenue by the JV, and then they recognized you know if, if you know they recognized their portion relevant portion of the JV as revenue. So like obviously like any revenue shortfall they could always make up because they would increase capex at the end of the quarter and recognize that as in the top line and that was what people cared about at the time. Um, so, and it was interesting actually, when, uh, I had the CFO on, uh, taped, uh, saying it, uh, explaining, <laughs> explaining, she didn't realize what she was explaining at the time. You know, I think she wasn't inten- intentionally trying to deceive people. I think this was sort of like one of those accidental things. Um, so pretty interesting on the acquisition volume front. And then the other thing you mentioned, um, is on the operations front and, what do you mean they can't operate the properties? That's something about REITs I didn't really understand because the only REITs I've ever looked at are like Equinix. Of course they operate their properties, no? They, right, have, to, right. they have to, so so explain that to me about the can't operate um, element. And then, um, yeah, the other note I made, yeah, absolutely. Like some lending, any kind of transaction like this, like that is, you know, lending money to somebody to go buy it. This is obviously like so many red flags around this. Um, it's amazing that you caught that. That's That's awesome. Was that... Did you mention that that was in the proxy itself or where did that show up? Like, where did you find that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So maybe the, the second part first. Um, 
well, it, it, that, you know, that was kind of like the next step in, in digging in. Um, I just started, you know, I, I said that I was, uh, um, I guess, up until three in the morning. I, something caught my eye uh, where, you know, in 2021. So first of all, actually, you guys will appreciate this. So what was interesting here is that um, this loan was originated um, in January of 2021. Uh, basically I worked out a timeline. So like sometimes when you draw things out on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard, it, it kind of like, it tells a, a bigger story than just like reading the words on a page. And basically what happened was they, they made this loan to this individual. They disclosed it. First of all, they, they didn't disclose it on the fourth quarter, right? So like make the loan in January of 21 report four Q earnings in February. Don't talk about, the loan at all, even though, like, I would argue it was material and to a related party, et cetera. But what was interesting is like the, this company, um, it reports uh, gross investment in different tenants. And it basically like uh, Steward Health, this, this largest tenant to MPW, its gross asset balances went up by about 330 some odd million dollars. So, so a big jump, right? Like it was, a, whereas you know, it would maybe jump um, 10, $20 million a quarter, depending on how much CapEx uh, MPW invests. And we can, that's another issue, by the way, we can talk about that separately. But um, anyway, there was a big jump in the assets and it seemed to be undisclosed. And then the next quarter, the first quarter, they um, talked about it on the call and in the, um, the 10Q as being a loan made to steward healthcare system. So like disclosing it as to the entity. The following quarter in the 10Q, they changed the disclosure to um, affiliates, affiliates of Steward Healthcare. So like a slight little change there. It went from the, the entity itself to affiliates of the entity. And then I'm like, hmm, that's weird. Okay, so like that, that's, that's a flag, right? Like, so you didn't disclose it, then you disclosed it, then you changed the disclosure. And what was interesting was they priced an equity offering the day before the loan was made. So like just, just red flags everywhere, red flags flying off the page. You, you didn't disclose it up front. You made it to a, uh, a related party. You mischaracterized it. Then you recharacterized it. And you didn't actually disclose fully that like this individual had pledged his equity as collateral until Hedgeye showed up and started making noise. So it just like, you look at that and it's just a horrible fact pattern. And it like, it's kind of, again, it's one of those things that like puts your antenna up. So, it, and, and I just lined out a timeline on a whiteboard or on, on a piece of paper, right? So like when you, when you look at it that way, it, it's pretty obvious to me that there was an intent to deceive or to like obfuscate, which is, which is a red flag. Um, and then, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the first question um, was, what was the first? Oh, the operating, like op, uh, REITs not operating their assets. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So this is, this has to do with, um, it's a good, like all, all REIT classification is, is tax treatment. It, it, you know, if you qualify as a REIT with the IRS, it basically allows you to, um, to forego uh, paying corporate taxes and like function as a pass-through entity where everyone who owns the REIT or shares of the REIT gets taxed on their dividends at an individual level. But, but in exchange for that, you, there are all these, you know, requirements that you have, 
have to meet in order to like qualify as a read or like stay inside quote unquote read rules. One of the, one of the requirements is that uh, it's called a, a good read bad, uh, sorry, good income, bad income test for, for read purposes. So like 90% of your income or your, your rent or your, your revenue has to be in the form of, of rent or mortgage interest derived from real estate. And, and what happens is in some property sectors like, um, like healthcare, for example, where there are like, you know, different levels of service and ancillary services or, or in lodging where you have like a food and beverage operation and spas and like all this other stuff, a, a significant portion of the revenue doesn't meet um, requalifications. And, and this is where it gets a little complicated, but, but basically what the tax code lets you do is an intra-INTRA company transaction where you set up a, a subsidiary that's wholly owned by the REIT. It's called a TRS, a taxable REIT subsidiary. Basically, the, the REIT leases, the, the, the corporate entity leases, the, or the, the operating partnership leases the property to a TRS who pays rent back to the REIT to lease it, but that gets eliminated as an intercompany transaction. And then the TRS hires a third party manager. So like in, in Todd's world, um, let's take, um, you know, let's take Diamond Rock, for example, or uh, Sunstone. Each, each property is held and it's it leased to a TRS and the TRS goes out and hires Hilton or Marriott or Hyatt to manage the company. And they pay that manager fees essentially based on revenue. And, and the REIT winds up earning rent from the TRS to meet, um, you know, REIT qualifications. It, it's, it's, a, it's a technicality. It's kind of like a, a way of getting around REIT rules. But the point is, you still have to have that third party operate the asset because of all the non-REIT income. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just trying to translate it in my head to like Equinix, for example. Like, does that mean that every data center that they have, they hire some third party to manage and run it and the customers are paying that third party. I mean, in the, in the, in that world, like the Equinix brand has been very important uh, for attracting large clients like Amazon to rely on them and things like that. Well, I think in, in Equinix and DLR's case, for example, they, they stay with inside the retest because the overwhelming majority of their revenue is still in the form of rent or fees to like, you know, lease cabinet space. So it, it re- I, I believe that the limitation is 90%. You can have like 10% of your revenue be like, quote unquote, bad read income before you trip the test. And they probably fall within that, that, you know, that threshold. Whereas in the case of like a full service hotel, you, you might have, um, you know, 20, 30% of your revenue from food and beverage operations. It, it, it's a, it's just like a, a percentage threshold that you have to meet in order to like, you know, fall within it. Okay. So like bottom line, does Equinix actually manage and run its own properties or there's a third party running and managing their properties or DLR? They, they internally manage and manage and run their own property. Okay. 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 That's the part I just wanted to make sure to clarify. Okay. So, so yep. let's stay for, we're going to come back to other antenna items from the balance sheet and stuff um, or on other antenna items in general from the proxy and, and things that, that you know, stand out and 
we could talk about other companies and not just MPW. Um, I almost feel like there's like a biblical sentence here and, and the rest of the story of MPW and it's and and Rob Simone's amazing analysis are written in the book of so-and-so um, actually probably worth, actually, that's something to think about. You should probably, that's, I would say you heard, you heard it first worth writing a book on this one. Um, this is like a, like a life moment, I think probably. Um, and so many amazing lessons that everyone can learn from it uh, in terms of avoiding uh, situations like this. And, and also kind of like, you know, more that you know, this is crap they can't do. Like meaning like not that they are going to deceive, but uh, occasionally they're sort of like this, like, yeah, why don't we capitalize? <laughs> I was like, like that, yeah, that would help us a lot. That would drive a lot of profits. Um, uh, can you guys hear me? Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Okay, got it. So, okay, so just staying with data centers for a sec, um, you know, for those who don't know, data center REITs, uh, this is, these are really interesting businesses. Basically, uh, you, you find a, uh, a space uh, that is uh, centrally located to some degree. Um, you bring enormous amounts of power and cooling to that space. Uh, so basically, you're you're you know you're you're working with the the power uh, companies and such to to bring enormous amounts of wattage. Uh, obviously, there's all kinds of um, hoops you have to jump through to to have it zoned for that kind of thing. It literally could be in, in the basement of an office building or 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 anywhere, um, as long as it can get licensed. And then you you and and you know kind of like and there's a connectivity reason to be there. And then you start kind of like bringing the parties to it, the different. Uh, companies who all want to be interconnected and who need super fast connectivity think you know lightning fast uh, trading uh, or think about uh, uh, for, you know like a game that is live or any kind of thing like that that you want to be or software that's cloud hosted that you want to, that needs to be you know kind of like no no huge latency um, this is one of the areas of you know how you can get around the uh, slowness of the general internet and you can accelerate yourself by being in, the, in these in these things and you pay rent to the owner of the of the space so the owner of these of these um, footprint areas are like, you know, DLR and Equinix and things like that. Um, so this mm -hmm. is a very interesting business. I, I don't know, like when, when I think about these things, I can think about a lot of uh, positive drivers. I can think about some negative drivers. Um, how do you tend to think about data centers in terms of the opportunities um, and yeah. the ones that you've dug into? Like what are, the, what are the good things? What are the bad things about the model that you can tell? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a big question. I mean, for, first of all, they're they're highly controversial right now. So, um, very publicly, a you know a friend of Hedgeye and obviously a legend in his own right, um, Jim Chanos and his firm um, have been very publicly short or advocating a short of uh, of DLR and Equinix. Um, and I I think obviously like they've they've been, they've been right so far for a variety of reasons. And I guess if I had to think about the positives and the negatives, and, and by the way, like full disclosure, I'm still, it, it's, it's complicated to me because like, I'm kind of like a bricks and sticks guy and there's te technologically is probably where like, you know, I just recognizing my own weaknesses where I'm like not as well versed as like you guys are. Um, but, but the positives, I guess, are that like, I think, I think about it in the, within the context of the industrial and the, and the logistics spaces. So 
basically like taking this, I'm going to draw like an analogy. So like it'll come full circle and hopefully make sense in the end, but you know, industrial and logistics, the, you know, you're talking about warehouse space, right? It was kind of like this backwater in, in the REIT world for a long time. Um, primarily serving industrial uses like manufacturing, um, you know, heavy storage, shallow bay industrial, stuff like that. Like a lot of the stuff would be, you know, positioned um, in like outside of industrial parks or like around the port of Houston, for example. And it was kind of like, you know, non-sexy, like, you know, kind of, kind of just there and, and also very economically sensitive. And then along comes, the you know Amazon of the Amazons of the world and kind of like the e-commerce revolution and the shift of e of you know consu- consumption away from brick and mortar retail to e-commerce and it caused this like massive renaissance in in the industrial and logistics real estate space over the last decade um, leading up through COVID right and and what was interesting is that like you know if you think about Amazon and all of this, the different SKUs that it has to carry. Um, the, the massive amount of space that it needs in each of its logistics centers, the heavy like space utilization with equip with equipment and the Kiva robots, all of that stuff. It um, it's a very capital intensive proposition. Uh, and so what Amazon and the others did was they decided like, okay, let's instead of putting this on our own balance sheet. And by, I mean, they do own some of their own logistics centers, but broadly, like instead of having everything on balance sheet, instead of having to like and tie up a ton of capital and in an in-house development team and effectively create a REIT within Amazon, let's outsource this to the public REITs and a bunch of other private owners and developers to be like developers and owners of choice. And, and we'll just pay them rent, get all of this like heavy capital uh, like you get this capital tie up off our balance sheet and onto somebody else's. And so what it did was it created like this incredible demand for third party space from the prologuses, the Dukes of the world, uh, first industrial. It just completely like, you know, revolutionized the entire sector. And it became, believe it or not, simple warehouse space became like the darling of the REIT universe for the past, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, and if you think about what that means, Amazon and, you know, any, anyone else who runs an e-commerce business has a choice. They can either continue that model or they can choose to bring it all back on balance sheet and undo the last like decade of investment and like supply chain building. And, and the way I think about the data center space, it's very similar. So the cloud, um, you know, the cloud providers basically had the same choice. They can either in-house and put on balance sheet their entire data center infrastructure, or they can outsource that effectively to third parties who are responsible for, you know, running, upkeeping, investing in the assets. And then like the service providers just pay rent and it's like an asset light, high, higher margin model to them. So it creates this like perpetual need. That, that's probably the biggest positive. Now, the downside of that 
it, like from the re, you know, from the the asset owner, like the you know the landlord's perspective, is that it's incredibly capital intensive. So, and and I think that's actually why, um, you know, the the short has been working, of, of the data center space, like as we've seen with so many other like really capital intensive, um, cost of capital dependent businesses, is that like the marginal returns on a, on a cash on cash basis are pretty thin to the data centers because it's how much capital they have to invest themselves into their own business. And, and like the fact that over the last decade, as we saw with so many other companies, as rates came down, they financed themselves with like ever lower and lower costs of debt financing. And now that's in the process of reversing. So it's kind of like this, this double whammy of um, functional obsolescence, having to, you know, continuously pour a lot of maintenance capex into the buildings, and now suddenly having to like finance yourself at a much higher rate, it it's really put the squeeze on these guys. Um, so I, I know that's a long-winded answer, but like to me, where, from where I sit, it that that's why it's so challenging right now for them. I don't know if you guys have a, a view. No, but, no. So I, actually, so so that just sounds like a like an interest rate short, right? Like interest rates were low for a long time. It allowed a lot of behavior. Now interest rates are high and it tightens up behavior. Is that, is that my over, I know I'm oversimplifying, but like, did I get, did I get it? Did I get it? Did I get get, get the the punchline? Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas and our risk manager in chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long-and-short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, I, I think so. But I, I also think that um, it kind of became, on, so that's like the, li- I guess, like the liability side, quote unquote. On, on the narrative side, or like the asset side, there, there was kind of like this, this Tina, or there is no alternative trade, where a ton of money um, in the rededicated space flowed into um, you know, ta- cell towers, data centers, the, the new alternative, re- you know, real estate sectors outside of the typical food groups like multifamily office, retail, industrial, um, et cetera. And, and I think that like, as that was happening, there was this big narrative that like there was this endless demand for this stuff um, that would consistently cause, you know, rental rates per, you know, per kilowatt to to increase to the sky and so cap rates compressed and um, a ton of capital moved into the space on like owning the equities but underneath the surface the return profile of the stuff as, as jim so like you know adeptly pointed out actually wasn't wasn't that great so like when you depending on how you calculate it you're talking about um cash on cash after, you know, investing a lot of, you know, how much maintenance capex you have to continuously pour into the stuff to upkeep it, you know, mid, mid single digit returns. And so like 
I guess you could make it, it's very similar to MPW in, in that respect. Like it, it only, it, it, it doesn't work or it's not economic because of the capital requirements biasing down the return profile. And the only way the model works is when you can finance yourself at low interest rates. So like in a way, it's almost like the low interest rate environment allowed the trade to continue and to really kind of promulgate. Whereas like contrast that with the cell tower space. It's so, Andrew probably could speak to this better than I even could, but it's so capital light or asset light and the return profile is so high that like, yeah, there'll be rate of change slowdowns, but the business doesn't have any existential risk because over time, these things compound with, with escalators into like the double digit, you know, cash on cash return, um, you know, kind of range. And so it doesn't, it, it matters, but it doesn't matter as much whether you're financing yourself at like 3% debt or 6% debt. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. Um, I get it. But I also think that, I guess it just de- also depends on the fundamental like drivers, right? Because if you think yeah. about that space, um, like more computing means we need more typically means we need more electricity. There's some, obviously there are offsets, uh, which is the move to, um, I don't know, like a per workload basis. Like, you know, you're moving from, you're moving down the nanometers of, of semiconductors. And so you're basically getting, you know, more, more output per, uh, per piece of electric, per unit of electricity. I'm sorry. I'm not so coherent this morning, but, um, there's sort of like this like balance where uh, you're constantly making your computing uh, more effective on a electricity on a wattage basis. However, uh, that just that curve, that enablement actually just yields more volume demand for computing. So typically yeah, yeah. you'd see the overall need for wattage and I'm bringing it all the way down to electricity because the more electricity you need, you know, the more the more data centers you need. And typically, this has only been up and to the right. I think there are maybe some geopolitical things to discuss about what could be a headwind to that, like you know what what might have been an underlying driver to overall you know technology growth and computing over the last you know forty for fifty year fifty years, let's say. But um, but let's assume that that curve, you know, even if it slows, doesn't change. So I would say, like then, to me, the only thing that would make sense on the short side, really within your space, like relative, I'm not talking about like, you know, yes, businesses that were funded by low interest rates and now interest rates are high. If that's the business model, then okay, you know, you're done. Yep. But within like relative to the rest of the space, like here you have demand drivers that are going to lead to fuller and fuller real estate, right? Like higher utilization yep. per square foot or whatever. Um, and and more and and the need for more of them. Whereas on the other side, in office REITs, you have serious headwinds to utilization and to you know kind of like uh, you know the fill rates and so on and so forth. And those are also based on uh, low interest rate businesses. So I, why wouldn't why not short those and be long oh, yeah. data center ones, right? Like isn't that the right trade? I, I don't, explain that to me. Yeah, yeah, sure. And and um, no, it's really a good question. Um, so. There's a, well, why, why short them? Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but what, what you said and described, I, by the way, again, recognizing my own shortfalls, like I, I actually, um, I, I 
rely on, I don't just defer to, I rely on folks like you and your knowledge of, of the tech space and, and Andrew's knowledge of the comm space to like understand those demand drivers better than even I could. But what, but what I do know is that like that may be, or what I think I know is that may be a time and space type issue. Like Keith likes to say, like you, you, sometimes you need time and space for that to play out. And, and the unfortunate reality on the REIT side is that um, one of the other requirements uh, of being a REIT is that you have to pay out 90% of your taxable income as, as dividends. And so what a lot of these guys did, and this isn't just the data center space, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking to DLR specifically here, but other companies, uh, they sized their, their dividends based on taxable income that was derived from low interest rates. And so many, that's another way of saying that like several companies now are effectively over distributing because as their, um, as their, uh, what you call it, their taxable income is now coming down from higher interest expense. They actually have flexibility to lower their dividends. But the problem is many investors have bought the stocks, especially like I'm thinking of passive dividend income funds, for example, have bought these stocks relying on or, or making a bet on not just sustained dividends at the current level, but also like growth in those dividends. And, and quite the opposite is happening right now. So I, I guess maybe another way of saying that is what, what you said may be true, may play out over a long period of time and work fine. But the problem is like many models may have to cut their dividend in the interim because they're effectively borrowing right now to fund it. Does that make sense? They're burning cash. They're burning yeah. generated cash. Yeah. So that makes yeah, so it's a, it's I I agree like the time and place thing. I agree with that. I I, I think that's that that's probably the best explanation. Also, is is also like if you look at the underlying driver, which is has been cloud software for I, I'm I'm assuming right. I know ten years ago when I I was investing by the way in these um, before they were REITs, uh, they were just tech companies, whatever. But they were. Um, I was invested in Telecity uh, out of uh, London, and I was. Uh, um, uh, in and around Equinix, I was I was at Putnam at the time doing international tech, so I was doing all the international uh, companies in the space, not um, not not Equinix, but obviously I had to follow Equinix um, as well. Um, and what I would say, just like kind of like you know, mentally, like I understand the I'm, I'm assuming the last five years, five six years, been driven by cloud. By you mentioned e-commerce as well, and if you just look at um, Equinix against some of the um, cloud software ETFs, for example, it has in the last year, or five years, even let's say it has like crushed them in the absolute, crushed it. the absolute biggest period of outperformance has been between November of 2021 or, or so like October, November, 2021, when cloud software peaked to today. And so there's some, something about that, that, yeah, I understand that doesn't smell right, right? Like if the driver of your uh, business is down a lot, does that mean your business, you know, should slow? That would be probably, maybe that would be like where I would begin the investigation. But at the same time, one of the problems for cloud software is there's a lot of cloud software companies and they're competing with each other. And if their prices change, it doesn't necessarily, you know, if there's headwind to their adoption curve, it doesn't necessarily mean the underlying usage and utilization of their software goes um, there just might be excess supply at that level as opposed to excess supply at the Equinix level, I guess. Um, but maybe yeah, moving and, up. And yeah. Sorry, oh, go sure, ahead. Sure, go, go for it. No, no, no go ahead. Go ahead, please. Then, 
lastly on the data center side um like i i kind of underestimated also in in my initial understanding of data centers how how important the um the power aspect of of the whole equation is uh really what it is what what determines um pricing in, in the form of like quote unquote rents is is access and availability of power and so like one of the most important factors to kind of think about um for the data centers, like maybe like a step removed from the cloud, uh, like, you know, cloud computing um, internal or compounded growth over time is, is like how much of the power available in the market has been spoken for and developed on. Um, my understanding is that like there, there's there been some tightening in, in Europe specifically. So like Frankfurt, Germany, for example, like all of the power available power has been spoken for. And so there's a thought out there that like, as as that and not just like the cost of energy and the cost of power goes up but like it becomes more difficult to build on top of it and all of it's been spoken for it actually creates like a pricing power situation for the REITs that already have like an install base or the landlords that have an install base but like that that also may be a longer tailed kind of story so i guess we'll see but that's that's like one of the you know the bull cases out there i guess you could say well that's right so that's interesting um it also uh, points to maybe like the fundamental limitation of the business model, which is that fundamentally the data center REITs are reselling power that yes. they that they don't make and they don't Correct. control the pace of supply. So if they're like, hey man, we you know we're we're full here at our gigawatts, we need another you know X amount. The power company might say, you know, no thanks. Like you know, we're not we're not building yeah. there right now. Actually, we have other things we're doing. And Absolutely. you're sort of you're sort of screwed as the data center, and you turn around and you tell Amazon, you know, hey, sorry, <laughs> I guess. Um, so there's a, there is a limitation because there is a, like a, there's a middleman element uh, to this business model that does not really control its fate. There's something there, I think. That's something that's probably the probably maybe the first place to start uh, investigating because at some point you frustrate the largest customers uh, of the world so much that they realize that they don't want to deal with a middleman anymore who just basically adds, you know, adds a layer yeah. of pricing on top of the, on top of the price of electricity. And they just need their own access at this point uh, direct to the source. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, and then it becomes kind of like a, you know um, I guess an IRR crossover analysis where, does the does the increase overhead and capital load that Microsoft or Amazon or whoever or or I guess um, Salesforce would have to like in house does does that more than offset the return the incremental return from bringing the the top line in house you know what I mean like it, it's that that's like the whole debate that's going on and I guess like what what Jim and and some of the other shorts in the data center space are betting is that like the hyperscalers are going to make that bet and then house it and it's going to kill the third party data center business. Um, whereas like the bulls kind of say, well, you know, like in a time where um, you know uh, all of their own businesses are slowing, that they you know they being the cloud providers are slowing and they're maybe laying off people and like rationalizing their own cost structure. Are they going to be willing to make like dive headfirst into this really, really like heavy lift? Um, so that that's kind of like the bull, the long-term bull bear debate that's going on underneath the surface, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I would imagine that the best case scenario for the bigs are to do a little bit on their own, like enough to force the provider to get moving. Uh, but if they were going to whole scale go into this, they would you'd see them maybe like buy DLR or buy a large REIT or something like that. In this yeah. Space. So I, I, I don't way, I don't like. And by the way, like that, that what you just said, uh, getting back to the industrial and logistics uh, example, and that's that's why I started with it. Th- that's exactly what Amazon does with its warehouses. Like it, it owns a few, it outsources most, but it's kind of like a, a mix of the two, d- depending on the location, depending on what the rents are in the submarket, like depending on like the, uh, you know, how, ac- um, how accessible the labor pool is. Like it's kind of like a, a mix of both asset levy, uh, asset heavy, excuse me, and asset light options. Yeah. And by the way, this, what we're talking about now, but like, you know, power limitations and, and kind of like being sold out on power or whatever, I think um, actually could have uh, effect on the industry itself, on my industry, like the, the, the waves that it could, that could spill back are that if you're, if you can't add uh, power in key data center locations, um, then obviously the price per watt is going to go higher, which means that workloads are going to cost more. And, and, and broadly, that means infrastructure as a service and computing is going to cost more. Um, and so companies that are able to rewrite their software to be lighter and more nimble, and even down to, I would say this all the way impacts down to like, like an Intel or an AMD where they have millions of lines of code um, uh, on their transistors uh, sitting there, you know, like, and not all of them are, are, are useful and being done. Whereas let's say the ASIC companies who are building purpose built or obviously, you know, any, anytime you build in tech with like a fresh canvas, uh, a clean slate, a tabula rasa, you're going to have be much more efficient in the beginning, right? Obviously there's a long curve and you, you have legacy and, and debt and tech debt and things like that over time that you just don't have time to really prune and, and meet with. But it could actually influence the next decade of tech where the lighter and more efficient the construction of the software, the more out, the more that company can actually flow its revenue and costs together as opposed to others who may see its co- their costs uh, of operating the business run faster than the revenue growth. Um, uh, there's, there's something there to, to, to waterfall into my space, uh, I think. Um, Andrew, I don't know if any of this affects yours. If not, we can move, uh, move on. I've got another question in the, you know, ready as well. Andrew, I don't know if you wanted to throw one in here. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I think, I mean, I, I've enjoyed the line of questioning just listening. Uh, I mean, you guys are on a roll, so I'll kind of just let you run with it. Um, I did, I, I, one question on MPW, because I mean, not to you know, spend too much time on that one, but like, I, I would just be interested, Rob, in like, when you had your like, aha moment, right? So you kind of like talked earlier about like, when you kind of found something like there was smoke, but I'm curious, like, at what point did like, you just see the light? Um, on this one, I know, I know you and I have had you and I have had some interesting conversations on it. Uh, so I think I, <laughs> yeah. so. I think I know your answer. But um, you know, once you're kind of once once you're done with this topic with Ami, I just maybe curious to to hear that anecdote quickly. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping 
time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. Uh, Ami, should I, should I, we keep going or should I go to that or what, uh, up here? No, yeah. Why don't we touch on that and then we'll come back. I've got another one uh, ready to go. That's on like a, like slightly pivot. So. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it's a, it's a good, it's a really good question. Um, I, <laughs> it's, forgive me for stumbling here. It, it, it's such a. Was it the port? Was it the, was it the John in Texas or. <laughs> well, okay. So, all right. So let, let me, let me give you two. There's two answers to that. One. Um, the first answer was like, wh- when did I figure out the business was broken? Um, that just like, like assuming that there's nothing, you know, fraudulent, right. Or like illegal going on. Um, when did I figure out that the model was broken? Uh, it, well, it was, there were two things. One, um, two parts of that answer. The first was figuring out and understanding that all of the highest quality hospital operators. So think of like the, uh, the HCAs of the world that's under Tom's coverage. Um, the, the ones that are best capitalized and financially the strongest, they, they understand. And, and, and in fact, they demand that, um, you know, they own their own real estate, that they don't sell it and, and lease it back, which is MPW's model. Uh, and the reason why is because in many cases, particularly for safety net hospitals in, um, in rural areas, the margins are so thin pre-rent that there, there's essentially no capacity to add a rent expense or a rent burden underneath that. And, and that's effectively what MPW's model is. Uh, what they do, and, and what, what does that mean? What, what it means is it, the whole thing lends itself to what's called adverse selection, where the biggest kind of best capitalized, most financially healthy operators are like, you know what, no thanks. Like we want to own our own real estate. And the ones that are struggling for a vari- any number of reasons, unfortunately, they, they go to this market essentially like where MPW like is a loan shark and, you know, it, it pays the highest price for the real estate and charges what I think is an above market unsustainable rent back to the operator and like lights a fuse under the whole thing. And, and MPW is the only REIT that does this. So like it was a combination of like the operator's the good, the, the highest quality operators that are profitable, not wanting to do this, the lowest quality operators, maybe not having no other option and, and MPW being the entire market. Like that is a broken business model. <laughs> it's, it's not sustainable. It doesn't, it doesn't lend itself. It's kind of like, um, kind of like what we see in Steiner space uh, when he talks about the, uh, the subprime car or auto loan market, right. Or like the affirms of the world. It, it only works so long as you have external financing available to you um, at all times to kind of like keep the whole thing going because, and I'm talking about MPW here because your tenants are such weak credit quality um, and they're struggling so massively that they like, they can't sustain themselves. The next step was, was then discovering that MPW loans money to its tenants, which is, which is insane. Like it, you know, 
when we've seen this over the past year, you know, early on, um, they, they very kind of like publicly said like, Oh no, we don't do that. Or like that, that won't be necessary. Uh, they, they lend money to their biggest, they lend money to all of their tenants, but they lend money to their biggest tenants who turn around and owe them several hundred millions of dollars of rent every single year. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily illegal. I'm saying that that's a business model. I don't want to invest in. And, and if it's misrepresented, <coughs> excuse me, if it's misrepresented, that's when it kind of trips over the line into like, you know, are you, are you painting an accurate, fair and honest picture of what your business actually is? But then the other, so like, that's the first question, like, is the business model sustainable or not? And like, I think my answer was no, but then there was this whole other kind of like, um, how to say it. Like, I don't, I don't want to use the F word specifically because, that that's for someone else to adjudicate. What I've really tried to do is present the facts and the evidence and like leave a breadcrumb trail and let everyone kind of come to their own conclusion. And to me, look, I, I know what my, my answer is. I know what my conclusion is. Um, I don't want to foresee that onto anybody else, let everybody else decide. But here's what I would say. Um, in the REIT world, many REITs develop, okay? Typically you have an in-house development team, you own the land, you're going to wind up owning the property and leasing it to a tenant. So you handle all of the development responsibilities yourself. There's like an in-house team. Maybe you hire a third, you know, a series of third party contractors and subcontractors, but you're, you're the money, right? Like you're the property owner. You kind of, you know, handle all the development. I, I can look across the entire REIT space and see every single one, uh, pretty much every single one that I know of or every single one that I know of does it that way under that model. Late in 2021, again, Stewart Health, it's now like a 25, like if, if you, you know, nor, uh, pro forma, it's probably about 25, a quarter of MPW's cash EBITDA. Um, and, and the real big problem spot in the portfolio, and what I think is ultimately going to blow the whole thing up. Um, it may, it may very well be in the process of doing that as we speak, but, um, Anyway, uh, our, our big part of our thesis is that this tenant is effectively or actually insolvent um, and that MPW was the only lifeline to it through loans, um, CapEx support, any, any one of the diff, you know, number of mechanisms. Um, but anyway, so late in 2021, a development down in Texarkana of a new, uh, a new hospital called Wadley Regional. It's a, it's a replacement hospital for an existing steward-operated hospital in, in Texarkana that is one of the, the three, I believe, that MPW doesn't own. But the point is they were going to own this one. Um, they're going to spend about $2 million a bed for a new hospital development in a market in a state where like the other steward hospitals are struggling, including one having closed. And in late 2021, there was a groundbreaking <clears throat> but what was interesting is that MPW wasn't there. Steward did the groundbreaking with the city. And I remember there was no mention on the, like the signage or the collateral or in any of the, you know, publications that MPW as the developer and owner of the property was there for a groundbreaking of this new asset. And I remember thinking to myself, man, that's, that's weird. I've never seen that before. And, and sure enough, um, you know, in, in subsequent disclosure, which, by the way, they started putting out after we showed up, I think that, like, you know, the pressure that our work put on them publicly kind of forced, forced them and forced the shareholders to demand increased disclosure around a lot of the stuff that we highlighted. But regardless, 
MPW advanced about $50 million to Stewart um, as the, you know, what, what seemingly, uh, and conveyed the development responsibilities for this asset to, to its tenant. Now that is like, by the way, the biggest tenant, right. That owes them back money. That is highly irregular. And my, my thought was like, Hmm, this is like odd. This could be effectively like a, a working capital loan potentially. Um, and you know, fast forward to the back half of last year, there was no activity at this site. And so I hired a photographer to go out and kind of see what was going on. Because again, like you had already announced the groundbreaking MPW had, uh, you know, funded one third of its total budget on the project. And all that was there was an empty field, like literally an empty field. And, and famously now, uh, you know, a, a kicked over, kicked over porta potty. And we had kind of like a, a funny legendary moment on the call where, you know, when I reported on this or like kind of let everybody know about it, Keith very like famously said, well, I, you know, I don't know anything about MPW, but I do know this. I worked in construction and, you know, things are bad when they kick the shitters over, um, which was, you know, hilarious. But and like, look, it's, it's entertaining, but there's there's a, a big kernel of truth in here. Um, someone please explain to me how and why this company advanced $50 million to its tenant to build this hospital. And, and literally we're, we're a year and a half in and it's still essentially a vacant field. Um, it's had a second groundbreaking, by the way, also conducted by Stewart in the city and MPW wasn't there that one either. Now, all I'm saying is it's irregular. It's not normal. We haven't gotten a good explanation yet from the company. Um, and it fits with a pattern in which MPW bends over backwards as it has throughout the years to do everything it can, um, to support its largest tenant monetarily and to, um, obfuscate that. And I just posit that like, again, at best, that's not a business model that I want to be involved in at worst. It, it could very well be something else. And that's for someone else to adjudicate. But so b business model question, unsustainable, but then like, just kind of practices and ethics and, um, you know, functioning as an, as an above board entity. Like I, I struggle, I really struggle. And I've tried to, to find any, any check marks on that side of the ledger either. Amazing. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I remember that moment as well on the call. That was, that was definitely one of those morning call moments that would go down in history. That was incredible. Um, I love, I love that finding. That was so good. Um, so definitely don't, don't let up the pressure, keep going, you know, get them, get them, get them honest, uh, at some point that'll work, um, or, or it'll disappear. Uh, I want to, we don't have that much time because I want to keep it to, to a certain level, but, um, I want to fall, to like switch it just a sec for, you know, you and I had some slacks going back and forth where I kind of like threw like a very large overgeneralization at you about the space and you were like, ha, ha, ha. So <laughs> let me want to jump into that because I still have that in my head a little bit. Um, but like your space, REITs in general, uh, requ require or, or thrive off of low interest rates or, or falling interest rates. Um, uh, tell me why that's not true. And, and I guess like the two things that I, when I think about REITs, like the two things that really stand out in my head are, interest rate reversal from, you know, from, you know, acquisitions are easier and easier and, and uh, so on and so forth to, um, to they cost a lot more. And then the other piece is, you know, obviously like on the office side, 
um, massive underutilization and, uh, you know, we have COVID underutilization and, and work from home elements, but then there's also uh, headcount reduction elements where companies are now trying to, we're in that side of the economy where people try to rationalize their foot footprints and things like that. So t- tell me, tell me why that's not like the, and, and it's levered. So like, isn't that like the most beautiful area for shorts? Cause these companies, as soon as they hit the refi button, like they're going to, it's going to blow up these companies. Like I'll just give you a small example. Like we had one company in software uh, just raised capital in, I think it was January, early February. Um, they did uh, a big cap raise at uh, 8.75% coupon. I mean, this is a company, this is like a software company that, in theory, generates cash flow and so on and so forth that like, you know, two years before could have had a 0% coupon bond, you know, for like forever, like free money, essentially. So, um, so I'm like, that's obviously like a big signal and and it it hurts their business model, but there's things they could do to change. Like, I'm just wondering on your side, aren't we just, isn't this like a a time game? Like, isn't there like a ton of refinancings that as they come due are going to be basically like end game for a lot of these companies? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. And so that's what, you know, for anyone who listens on the call and kind of listens to Keith and I go back and forth, but that's one of the the biggest themes in real estate right now. And and, and, Ami, you kind of, again, this is just my, my view of the world. I'm sure there, there are people who will will disagree. Um, You know, actually, let me, me, I'm going to go back and like, I'm going to tell a story from, from my career that was kind of like a, an eye opener for me. Um, you know, I, I worked, I actually spent several years in my career at a, a REIT called Paramount Group, uh, ticker PGRE. It's a, it's an office REIT that owns, um, I think like, you know, about 70% of its portfolio is in New York, another 30% at this point in, in San Francisco. <clears throat> I spent, I was there for about three years. I did, you know, IR, a bunch of other things, lots of stuff with the board, um, a couple different things. Uh, but it was fascinating. It was a great experience. It was fascinating. But one of the things that like always kind of struck me as not making a ton of sense, what, you know, all of the New York city office rates with maybe the exception of um, ESRT are, are very, and maybe Vernado too, because of their cash, but they're very highly levered entities. So, you know, SL green is obviously the, um, you know, the biggest kind of like problem spot right now, given their leverage. And we can talk about that. We've had that one on the short list, but the Paramount's levered nine times. Um, and I use cash EBITDA because again, like, you know, we've tried to make this point with MPW. You can't, you can't service your debt with non-cash revenue. I, I'm, I'm not really sure why people don't grasp that. Um, it's, you know, it, well, anyway, but so cash EBITDA to my, to my mind and cash EBITDA relative to debt service are the kind of the correct metrics. And, and I was in meetings, both both as a sell sider and then working at Paramount, where like you know we'd walk in and you know buy siders would say like, hey, you know like you know eight, eight times nine times leverage, it's kind of it's kind of pushing it. Um, you know, how do you think about that? And and like one of the things that would be say it would be said is, and it's pure narrative, is like, well, not all leverage is created equal. Meaning like there's a difference between. Um, secured leverage, uh, unsecured debt at the top go level, um, you know, differing maturity profiles, all of that stuff. And, and that is true. But in the public markets, when asset values compress, all else the same, 
the more dollar leverage you have in your structure, the more your equity is going to compress against that in an amplified way. It's just simple math. And I think so like that was really eye opening for me because that was like one of the most pure like bullshit narrative kind of things that I, I had seen where I was like, yeah, that guy's like, this is, this is nonsense. Like this doesn't make any sense at all. Like how, how can anyone take this seriously? Um, and now where we find ourselves, and it really gets down to the degree of leverage, right? So like interest rates have come down well, came down over the, you know, the last decade up until last year and cap rates, which cap rates put simply cap rates are just kind of like the inverse of an EBITDA multiple more or less at the property level. Um, like real estate investors think of things in yield, uh, yield terms as opposed to multiple terms. But, but, you know, cap rates came down alongside interest rates as, as like a reference point, just like multiples expanded, right? Like it's the, in, the inverse of the two or the reciprocal of, of each other. Um, so, you know, you can, you, whereas a decade ago, maybe you were buying an asset in an eight or nine cap. Now you're buying an asset at a five or six cap. Y- you can make that math work with, five or 6% interest rates so long as you keep your, your leverage down, right? Like if you're levering the building or the, the company 20 to 30% and having to borrow at five or 6%, you can still make money. But if you're, if you know, your cap rates, your in-place cap rates are like five or 6% and not really going to move for this foreseeable future because of the term of your leases and you levered yourself up 60, 70, 80% or more at previously low interest rates and now having to refinance and roll your debt, like that math just doesn't work. Like you're, you're mathematically guaranteed to lose money because of the negative leverage effect. And like, that's the kind of thing that's happening to SL green. That's what's happening to DLR. That's what's happening to MPW in a very, very material way. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of like this. Um, it's like Sam Zell says, right? Like famous, I think I said this on the call, like the problem with leverage is you have to pay it back. Very, very famous line from him. And, and for better or worse, the real estate world has made a one-way levered bet by and large, particularly amongst the privates over the last decade. And now they have to figure out how to deal with that, like how to kick the can, how to, you know, term out your debt attractively, how to, you know, sell assets somehow um, and, and not dilute yourself to such a large degree that you impair the, the remain co while still paying off, you know, your debt as it matures, it's, it's a real box. And so like what I've tried to do, and you can see this on my position monitor, like one of the, one of the pushbacks I get from clients sometimes is like, Hey, you know, your lungs aren't moving around that much. They're really boring. Um, you know, they're, they're low levered, low, you know, kind of consistent growers with low leverage, like low beta, all those style factors. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? Like I, I can't, I can't responsibly recommend some of this higher octane stuff because we don't know where a lot of the bodies are buried and some of these things are going to blow up. And so like for now, until we get through this, boring is good. And like, I'm, I'm totally fine recommending to both institutional and, you know, pro subs that like, Hey, like, let's, let's at best lose less money on the long side and hunt some of the higher, you know, higher octane garbage on the short side and, and like make our money that way, because that that might be the best we can do. So that actually answers a different question that I had for you, which is like, describe your, your sort of like ideal long, but I guess 
ideal long right now is different than your ideal long kind of like in a, in a general cycle. Um, and so maybe that's something that maybe that maybe let's, let's, let's use this as the kind of like the last question here, the very last one, I promise um, for today is in a, in a non, when it's not uh, the environment we're in right now, what what describe your like ideal long in the REIT space? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, no, real, really good way to end. So I think that like, <laughs> I don't, no, no, I don't think I know. I know that one of the variables that is just like kind of serially underappreciated in the real estate world is just how capital intensive some of the models are. So like take office, like we were just talking about, right. Um, when I, when I was at Paramount and this is pre COVID, we, we were routinely talking about the recurring or maintenance CapEx load to the landlord, AKA Paramount, you know, being 20 to 25% or more of, of NOI over long periods of time. And, and that number has escalated materially coming out of COVID because you have to like, you know, you, you may have to give tenants more inducements or, or CapEx allowances to get them to lease with you just to keep your rate, your, your rental rates up. Um, now contrast that with like the tower space, um, maybe, bleeding over into Andrew's world a little bit where essentially all you have is an erector set and all the equipment is maintained by the operator. So like the, you know, Verizon, AT&T or T-Mobile will, will lease space on the array, put their antenna and all their equipment. And it's, that's their responsibility. And all they do is pay rent subject to an escalator. And that erector set is owned by American tower S back. And essentially like there's no, there's really no capital you have to put into that or, um, take self-storage where CapEx is maybe like six to 8% of NOI or multifamily where it's 12%. Um, I guess what I'm saying is like these businesses, they compound on the top line, but they require, they're very capital efficient and relatively asset light. And so there's this really like interesting compounding effect over, over tail duration, you know, using the hedge eye uh, framework where things compound nicely and in a capital efficient way, and then like the, the capital intensive stuff is, you know, your office, your retail, your data centers. It's, it's a little trickier or hotels and pod space, although like I'll let him comment about that. It's, it's trickier and more cycle dependent and you can't like make as a high probability bet that it'll compound like kind of like a set it and forget a compounder over time. So that's really what I look for. And like, for example, I have SBAC. Um, and NSA on the long side right now, they, they definitely fit that mold, but they're tail longs. Awesome. Um, I do have more questions, but I'm going to leave it because uh, we filled up the time. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for being our guest today on Unscripted Equity Curiosity. This has been season three, episode 10. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone. And thanks, Rob, for your time. Be well. Thanks a lot for having me. This is awesome, guys. Talk soon. All right. Talk soon. Take care, Rob. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. 
EDGE is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.